0: You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 27th of January, 2023, on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Tom Edwards. Coming up on today's programme, Ukraine's government launches an anti-corruption drive. But what impact is the crisis having on international support for the country? Then we turn to Burkina Faso as France agrees to pull its troops out of the West African nation. We also recap the Community of Latin American and Caribbean States Summit in Buenos Aires. And we learned that no sooner is one battle won in America's
1: culture wars than another front opens, as we learned of a new crusade to remove
0: trousers from a cartoon bear. It's time to wrap up the week that was with Monocle's Andrew Muller. All that and more ahead here on The Briefing with me, Tom Edwards. We start today's programme in Ukraine where the government has been pushing for an anti-corruption drive. It comes after 11 officials have either been sacked or resigned, creating something of a crisis of public trust. Well, let's get more on this now with Alia Shandra, who's the editor-in-chief of Euromaidan. Uh, Hello, Ali. Good afternoon. Thanks for being with us on the programme. Yeah, just paint a picture. How is this uh, political reshuffle slash crisis? How's it being viewed by uh, Ukrainians? Well, you
2: know, surprisingly, it has gotten much more traction outside of Ukraine than inside Ukraine. Ukrainians are just too busy trying to survive and fight the war with Russia. I am preparing for the show. I have reviewed the publications and um, only English language publications have focused on the reshuffling. Um, uh, uh, Ukrainians have um, not taken so much attention to it. But of course, um, the reshuffle itself is... um, 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 it comes after a series of scandals that have really shaken public trust of Ukrainians and their leadership. And um, the most prominent of these, the one, the one that got the most attention, is a scandal connected to food procurement in the uh, army. But um, it appears that this scandal was likely overstated, actually. Um, the National Anti-Corruption Bureau has not presented any evidence of wrongdoing, although it is checking. Um, accusations of inflated food prices. And, um, you know, what's important to see here um, in all of these scandals is actually the Ukrainian government's fast reaction to them. It's Mm. quite remarkable for me that amid a war, um, following just one journalist publication, a hearing was conducted in the parliament, and uh, the defense minister presented contracts. The government's, uh, the um, Ukraine's top anti-corruption body started investigating these contracts. Uh, for me, and 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 following that, MPs launched. Um, an initiative to create more transparency. I think what is really important here to see is that despite Ukraine having problems with corruption, um, that it really has created a mechanism to address this problem. And this is one of the um, reasons that um, that Ukraine, Ukraine's Euromaidan revolution happened. This is one of the reasons that uh, that activists are fighting for a better future for Ukraine. All of these anti-corruption mechanisms they have been created and they are working. Mm. And you know, for me, one of the fears is that um, this really remarkable thing, remarkable new anti-corruption and infrastructure that works based on um, just one journalist publication uh, that will just (laughs) um, be overlooked amid accusations of a corruption scandal. Because, you know, it's really a sexy topic to talk about corruption in Ukraine and to oversee, overlook um, the successes that it has been making. And I think this is actually one of... It's one of Russia's prominent um, propaganda narratives to... Um, diminished international aid just to present Ukraine as this basket case of corruption, mm. whereas actually Ukraine has made great strides in tackling corruption. And it doesn't stand anything in comparison to authoritarian states like Russia or Belarus. This is really part of Ukraine's story, why it why it is fighting the war against Russia, because it wants to be a democratic state where the authorities are held responsible for their actions. And we, despite the war, we see that this is actually happening. And I think this is really remarkable. This well, well yeah, like, I mean... I, the,
0: the
2: it, well, exactly, Ellie,
0: I, I was Because I was going to ask you a question, actually, about whether they, that Zelensky in particular, whether he risked any loss of confidence uh, from his public. But in fact, as you have painted the picture, the opposite seems to be true. And actually, he's bringing the dynamism, the decisiveness associated with his wartime leadership to addressing some problems which, uh, whilst as as you say, are are being uh, overstated, perhaps, especially by other stakeholders like uh, the Russia from without, nevertheless were problems for for Ukraine. I just wonder, one potential stumbling block could be when it comes to the European Union. We know that that is a direction of travel which is on the agenda for many Ukrainians. And look, there are many attendant problems. But we do know that EU has very rigorous standards on anti-corruption. Do you think that Zelensky's dynamism... His decisiveness will aid even that longer-term quest for Ukraine to uh, move closer to the European establishment.
2: Well, you know, it remains to be seen... Um, the most important thing right now for Ukraine is really to win the war. And um, one of the risks that all this, all of these, uh, this scandal that ensued um, uh, is creating is that it shifts the focus of, of the struggle we have. We need to win the war and then we can deal with EU integration. Mm. Um, but one of the conditions actually for receiving the macro financial aid um, from the EU that was adopted with such struggles is that it's contingent on reforms. Um, so there will be um, criteria placed before Ukraine if it wants to continue receiving the tranches of the macro financial aid. And, I, and I'm sure that this will create um pressure on the ukrainian government that has been absent in the last year because anti-corruption activists have been busy with the war um and you know like since 2014 we have been saying that ukraine is fighting on two fronts the first front is the war with russia because it started in 2014 we should never forget that Mm. and the second front was um uh, against corruption and to create an accountable government and we can expect that this fight will um be activated once once again despite this full-blown war it's extremely difficult but it needs to be it needs to be done of course um, but once again another when we're talking about this corruption scandal the, there are two main accusations and one of this one of them I was talking about it was due to a journalist investigation it was not yet proven um, it's just being investigated by a national anti-corruption bureau the second one was already proven well the National Anti-corruption bureau presented evidence of wrongdoing by the Deputy Minister of Infrastructure, which once again shows that this um um this uh, anti-corruption body is working. So it actually found wrongdoing, evidence of wrongdoing. I think this should be actually a reassuring signal to Ukraine's partners because um, its anti-corruption infrastructure is functioning. It yeah, doesn't I was, I- just react to the scandals. Yeah.
0: Exactly. It's a story, I guess, maybe then to, to to celebrate rather than to cause concern. Just very, very briefly, earlier, are we confident that there remain the political personnel to fill roles that are We mentioned, you know, resignations or there may be sanctions. Is there a good calibre of potential political leadership uh, alongside Zelensky, obviously, who's such a powerful figure at the centre to fill these roles as they may become available if these scandals do claim one or two more scalps just briefly?
2: Um, you know, we should see the string of resignations that followed. Well, it's, it's rather opaque. We don't know the reasons for many of the dismissals of the heads of, the, uh, of Ukraine's oblasts that were also sacked in the scandal. So it, it, it is quite opaque, basically, the reasons. Um, but what we can also see is a continuing tendency for um, the dismissal of Zelensky's buddies, his friends that he brought to power from his former um, comedian career. Uh, for instance, Kirill Tomoshenko, who was uh, recently signed a letter of resignation. He was the man who created Zelensky's PR image when he was um, running for president. So he's just one of his media buddies. And um, he filled various roles in the government. And then just recently he resigned. And it's just an ongoing trend that shows that Zelensky's friends, maybe they don't have Um, what it takes to run a government at war. And we have seen this in the very start of the war when, when actually some of his friends that he got into, um, for instance, the security service, they proved not up to the task because, uh, for, for because of, of the gaps and, and at the start of Russia's invasion and the uh, quick over, uh, overtaking of Kursk indeed,
0: and Alia. So, and so maybe, as you said, a little like we mentioned before, in terms of the corruption anti-corruption drive, it's it's a sign of the maturity of Zelensky and his administration. It's certainly one we're going to watch um, very closely. But uh, huge thanks for joining us this uh, Friday afternoon to tell us more about what's happening there on the ground. That was editor in chief of. Euro Maidan. Right now, let's cross over to Monocle's Carlotta Ribello. She's standing by with the day's other news headlines.
3: Thanks, Tom. Czech voters are heading to the polls today to elect a successor to President Milo Zeman. The second round runoff between former Prime Minister Andrei Babis and retired NATO General Peter Pavel is being perceived as a contest between populist oligarchy and liberal democracy. The contest has been marked by disinformation and even death threats. Police officers have rioted in Haiti's capital, Port-au-Prince, protesting the killing of 14 colleagues by criminal gangs. The rioting officers blame the government for not taking action. More than 100 demonstrators blocked streets, burned tires, broke security cameras and damaged vehicles. And cyclists in the Dutch capital will have more space to park their bikes from this week, with the opening of an underground bicycle garage near Amsterdam's Central Station. Built at a hefty cost of €60 million, Euros, the structure is capable of holding as many as 7,000 bikes. Those are today's headlines. Back to you, Tom.
0: Thank you very much indeed, Carlotta. That is a lot of bicycles. Right, next on the programme, to France. It's agreed to withdraw all its troops from Burkina Faso, following a request by the country's military leaders. There are currently 400 French special forces in Burkina Faso who will have just one month to leave. Well, let's get more on this now with Sir Alex Vines, who's the director of the Africa programme at Chatham House. Uh, Good afternoon to you, Alex. Great to hear from you, as always. Just give us your take. What's the significance of this decision? There was a similar move, of course, wasn't there, last year in in Mali. Um, What do you make of it?
4: Yeah, so the, the, there's a military junta in Burkina Faso. There's been two coups there. Uh, and the new version of the, the junta has been saying that it wants to diversify its relationships. And uh, so I think has acted against the French here. Mm. Um, but I, I think that it, it's also a bit of posturing the french were actually considering to withdraw their special forces the 400 anyway from burkina faso as part of their new security configuration in west africa which is more focused on neighboring niger and on the countries further south so i think the junta used this also to kind of get in before the french made an announcement by, by making this announcement the difference between neighboring mali and niger and uh, burkina faso is that um, The the, the Burkina uh, Junta want to maintain uh, a reasonable relations still with Paris. There's no suggestion of the closure of the French embassy and still maintaining diplomatic contact. Uh, although there has been some tensions over some of the things that the French ambassador in Wagandougou, the capital of Burkina Faso, has been saying.
0: Well, well, yeah, and just let me ask you a bit about your impressions in terms of Burkina Faso's capacity, its capability to continue to defend itself and to address these threats from sort of Islamist insurgencies, from jihadists in the region, do, do we think that despite the maybe the sort of posturing or some of the background that you've described very elegantly there, um, Sir Alex, that they have the capacity to continue to run their own
4: security here? Well, that is the big question. The junta is struggling and the the, the, the kind of coup within the, the, the you know, of the uh, to replace the previous junta was about that the security had deteriorated and the previous junta wasn't delivering. What Faso want is better security. And you're absolutely mm. right. You've got ISIS and al-Qaeda affiliated uh, uh, militants that are... Uh, very active and destructive in in some 40% of Burkina Faso now. It's a nasty, deteriorating situation. And the Burkina military itself isn't able really to cope with that. Hence, there's been allegations, uh, including by the president of Ghana, that the Burkina asked the private military company, uh, Wagner from Russia, to be involved there. Uh, And I think that is correct. Uh, Wagner has been invited But uh, uh, from my understanding, the the military junta was wanting it for elite Praetorian Guard uh, services. particularly for themselves and their presidency in Ouagadougou, mm. whereas Wagner uh, is more interested in protecting economic assets and, and, and getting remunerated from those. And the junta has refused that for, for now, which is the model that I think we've seen in other places in Africa, like the Central African Republic with the Russians and Wagner and also in neighboring Mali.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you about the the example of Mali and CAR as well, where where Wagner Group is. Um, But I guess rather than that, which you've explained, what about about the French? You've already alluded to this at the top, uh, Sir Alex, you know, they've kept... They they continue to maintain close military links with a number of former uh, colonial territories and other partners. There's still quite a few soldiers deployed in Niger, in Chad. Do, do you think, well, tell us a bit more about that pivot that you mentioned at the top in terms of French policy. What what does that mean? And should we expect to see further troop drawdowns?
4: Yeah. So last year, almost this time, last February, President Macron, the president of France, announced that, that there was going to be this uh, pivot, which was the ending of the big French operation Bacan and a focus on coastal states and their security. So looking at this the, the, the security issues more more regionally and still focusing French assets out of Chad and Niger. And so that's developed, and the French are also looking at other Africa initiatives that that are developing on how to provide common security in West Africa and the Sahel in particular. Something in particular the Ghanaians have been pushing called the Accra initiative. Indeed, I've got the former president of of Ghana, Mr. Mahama, speaking here at one o'clock at Chatham House about uh ghana's concerns about regional security and the accra initiative among other things so this is something that the coastal states are very interested in but cooperating not just with uh with 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 the french but also with other partners including the united kingdom which itself announced uh, not very long ago that it was withdrawing its true contribution to the UN mission that's stationed in in, in Mali Manusma.
0: Yeah, fascinating stuff um, Sir Alex Vines, thanks so much for joining us I, I, we should let you get on, you need to get ready to uh, look after the former president uh, in, in just a moment, really interesting stuff, thanks for your take uh, and for joining us on the briefing, that's uh, Sir Alex Vines Director of the Africa Programme uh, at Chatham House, uh, thanks to him you are listening to the briefing here on Monocle 24 It's been a busy week for leaders across Latin America. They've been gathering in Buenos Aires for the Community of Latin American and Caribbean State Summit, discussing the future of the region from trade to economics and tourism and much else besides. Monaco's senior correspondent, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, joins me now to tell us more, Faye. Welcome uh, to the briefing. Slightly different than our usual end-of-the-week catch-up exactly. talking about, talking speak, about the Tom. global charts. <laughs> Listen, uh, let's start with uh, Lula, of course. It, it seems an obvious
5: one to ask you about. A first foreign trip, I think. A busy week. Uh, what have you made of it? And, and I think it's been quite a you know a special week for Latin America, because I think Brazil re-entered, kind of uh, realigned itself with Latin America, because under the Bolsonaro years, uh, Tong the relationship was quite bad, actually. Uh, across the continent. In fact, the comu- Community of Latin American and Caribbean State Summit, which happened in Buenos Aires last Tuesday, Bolsonaro completely pulled Brazil out of this group uh, while he was president. So Lula, of course, re-entered. And it's good to say that Lula, in fact, was one of the founders uh, of this summit when he was a first president back in 2002 and he was elected for the first time. And then he said, you know, I'm sorry for the Bolsonaro years, uh, but as Brazil's back. We want to do business with Latin America, not just Mercosur, of course, the group between Argentina, Uruguay. So it's quite an interesting week. And I also find interesting, tone the difference between tone of international coverage and the local coverage as well, mm. because everybody was talking about uh, the sur, which was going to be kind of a, a common currency unit. But... I think Latin Americans knew that this would not going to happen, at least in the next decade or so. Uh, but here in Europe, everybody was excited about it. But it, it's not happening. It, they it, still,
0: it... our European brothers and sisters, still love the idea of a common currency for obvious reasons. Perhaps Fernando, um, let me ask you about what else he was doing, because Lula has really sort of, as you say, reignited that sort of diplomatic trail. He met, well, he met President Fernandez separately. Um, I think maybe the next day he also went to Uruguay and yes. he met the president. He Met one of his old buddies, again, slightly from the old card, the one of his, old, his old friends. Um, what do you think they're going to be prioritising? What would those discussions have looked like if we park the sort of Mercosur currency question? Is it about though, putting trade front and centre.
5: Absolutely. And and in fact, there's been. I said that everything was fine, everybody's kind of realigned again, but of course there are differences between countries. So in Uruguay, uh, for example, Lula wants to prioritise uh, a trade agreement between Brazil and the EU. And Lula, let's remember, he does have a very kind of strong relationship with the leaders of France, of Germany, of Portugal, of Spain. Uh, you know, in fact, I believe Macron's going to Brazil in February. Uh, uh, the Spanish leader, Pedro Sanchez, also uh, heading to Brazil this way. So he said the group should prioritize this trade agreement instead of China. Of course, the Chinese trade agreement is important as well, but he says we should finish the one with the EU first. That's not the opinion of the Uruguayan leader, like Kyle Po who said, listen, we have to do the, the, trade, the trade with China first. You know, there might be some local differences. I mean, let's remember China is the strongest uh, commercial partner of the region. Um, But, yeah, but it's interesting to see that Lula is wanting to prioritize Europe. So, yeah, they'll have to discuss about it. Uh, Perhaps there's a lot of pressure from Europe as well for this trade agreement to be resolved in the next months for sure.
0: Fernando, it's always struck me about Lula that he's quite a canny operator. You mentioned he has an enduring popularity overseas. We know he does at home, although maybe it was a bit closer than we thought in, at, the, at the ballot box. Um, how does he best ensure that we build on this idea of Brazil being back as a global player? There's a soft power question. We talked about it with the, well, actually slightly misfiring Celisau in the World Cup. But um, there's there's soft power initiatives. There's diplomatic initiatives. There's all these economic and explicitly trade initiatives But, you know, he's got a lot in his in-tray. How does he ensure that as well as serving the people who've returned him to office, he does get Brazil back to its position as one of the
5: preeminent global uh, powers? That's a very interesting question, Tom, because, you know... Lula, for sure, all the world leaders they wanted him to go to come back to the world stage. Lula is an ex- is excellent, you know, to represent in Brazil abroad. But my only concern, and I've, I've been thinking a little bit about this. Uh, look at Macron, for example. He is kind of a very good French president abroad. You know, he does represent France so well, but internally, there are a lot of criticism. I mean, it's not well liked. I know he won the re-election, but it was by a short, you know, kind of a slightly narrower margin. And Lula should never forget that. So yes, I think it's good to have a Brazilian president that can talk to the world, to Europe, to Africa, to China, to India, to the United States. But he should never forget that, you know, what really matters for him is actually what's happening in Brazil as well. But I I think in the sense of soft, soft power, I mean, it's remarkable the, the, how quick the change was. I mean, it's completely different. There are talks about COP uh, being hosted in Brazil in a few years' time in the city of Belém. Which would have
0: been un- unthinkable mere yeah. be months ago. I mean, yeah.
5: important world leaders coming to Brazil uh, next month. I mean, the change has been immediate uh, in that sense of soft power, but he should never forget what's happening as well in Brazil. Otherwise, he might become one of those presidents that, you know, looks great abroad, but internally with still a lot of problems there as well.
0: Fernando, fascinating stuff. Thanks for sharing your insights. The one and only Fernando Augusto Pacheco joining us here on The Briefing. Finally, it is Friday, which means it's time to recap the things we know today that we didn't necessarily know seven days ago. Here's Monocle's contributing editor, Andrew Muller, with this week's What We Learned.
1: Lately drinking warm red wine is all I want to do. We learned and this I week that wine I've is bad for you. <laughs> Sorry, Farron. But I don't care. No- We'll need some grim, abstemious chanting instead. We learned that wine is bad for you from Ireland, which plans to add health warnings to the labels on wine bottles, assuming it can find any room amid all the usual twaddle about. ripe right raspberry red fruit flavours with a touch of peppery spice on a well-balanced fruit-driven palate with a refined tannin structure and soft, subtle French oak characters. And we are genuinely reading that off the back of the first random bottle we plucked from the rack. Bit early, but okay. We did learn, in fairness, that Ireland also proposes adding such cautions to spirits and beer, but we learned that it was vastly funnier to concentrate on the wine aspect because we learned this had prompted a richly entertaining Irish Italian diplomatic stramash. We learned that Italy was choosing to take this personally, and the dudgeon of Italy's foreign minister will now be rendered by Monocle's Italian dudgeon desk chief, Chiara Ramella.
3: This is an attack on the Mediterranean diet, which is a fundamental part of our economy. It is also part of our identity, and our identity cannot be perverted.
1: We further learned that a spokesperson for Italy's biggest farmers' association wanted to know if anybody else fancied some of this. It is completely improper to equate the excessive consumption of spirits,
3: typical of the Nordic countries, to the moderate and conscious consumption of quality products
1: with lower alcohol, such as wine. We now pause to offer right of reply to this outrageous and provocative traducing of Scandinavian sobriety to Monocle's Finnish indifference desk chief Marcus Hippi. I simply don't care about any of this. More as we have it.. Sticking with Scandinavia, we learned that Sweden's prime minister, possibly after, excessive consumption of spirits, typical of the Nordic countries who knows, had become embroiled in a splendidly Scandinavian scandal misleading police about the illegal eel fishing activities of a recently hired advisor. And yes, we have shoehorned this one into the monologue, just to suggest that, as his Italian antagonists might put it, that's amore. But we learned that Ulf Christensen – we're going to save the one about the difficulties of assembling a Swedish cabinet for next time – was not the only current or former national leader making dubious claims pertaining to outdoor recreation. We learned that former US President Donald Trump had been playing golf, which is hardly news in itself, but that he was advancing his golfing prowess as proof of his fitness to govern, specifically as he informed the dozens of users of his social media platform Truth Social that he had won the senior championship at Trump International Golf Club. We learned, however, when we diligently cross-referenced the dates of said tournament with Trump's schedule, or to be honest, read chortling articles by newspapers which had done all the work for us, that Trump's claim upon the trophy was arguably somewhat undermined by the fact that on the first day of competition he had been roughly 965 kilometres away at another thing entirely. We learned, basically, that promising new Republican Congressman George Santos, if that is his real name, etc., prodigiously fabulizing star of several recent and likely future of these monologues, is going to have to up his game, possibly by climbing Everest blindfolded again. But we learned that Trump and Santos's fellow Conservatives had more pressing, by which, to be clear, we mean more insane concerns. woke M&M's have returned. The green M&M got her boots back, but apparently is now a lesbian maybe, and there's also a plus-sized obese purple M&M. So we're gonna cover that, of course.
0: I'm worried about you. I think this is the kind of thing that makes China say like, oh good, keep focusing on that. Yeah. Keep focusing yeah. on giving people their own color M&M's uh,
2: while we you know, take over all of the mineral deposits in the entire world.
1: We learned, however, that these forces of righteousness had claimed a tremendous victory as M&M's announced that they would retire their affrontingly inclusive cartoon candies. However, we learned that no sooner is one battle won in America's culture wars than another front opens as we learned of a new crusade to remove trousers from a cartoon bear. Finally, there is this. First it was M&M's. Now it's root beer. Rudy the great root bear. He serves as the mascot of A&W restaurants. He's now going to be wearing pants. Apparently, according to the company, Rudy's lack of pants was quite polarizing, they say. This is the woke police cancel culture has gone ridiculous which we learned became all the more amusing yet more pathetic when A&W subsequently announced that they'd been making a joke at the expense one assumes of opinion honking blowhards who could be relied upon to take it seriously unless of course A&W had actually been serious but were now furiously backtracking after being besieged online by angry morons it is so very hard to tell nowadays
3: mm-hmm. yeah yeah, mm. yeah.
1: Mm. I know, right. And we learned that none of this matters anyway because we're all doomed, even more than usual. We learned this from the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, attention-seeking nerds who traditionally pop up just as everyone's New Year hangovers are ebbing, brandishing their big doomsday clock.
2: Today, the members of the Science and Security Board move the hands of the doomsday clock forward.
1: This year, we learned the friendless Poindexters had decided it was 90 seconds to midnight, apparently the closest we have been to apocalypse since. The lonely dweebs started pestering everybody with this nonsense back in 1947, and they said it like it was a bad thing. So in its ad campaigns, Mars set about making its M&M characters as unattractive as possible, because when you're intentionally repulsive, it's clear you've got the right politics. So the green M&M lost her sexy boots, the brown M&M her stiletto heels. The orange M&M, meanwhile, became a poster boy for the mental health crisis and would henceforth, quote, acknowledge and embrace his anxiety because America badly needs more neurotic candy. Then late last year, Mars went further. The company added obese and distinctly frumpy lesbian M&Ms to promote, quote, feminism and body positivity.
0: For Monocle24, I'm Andrew Mullet. And thanks, as always, to Andrew for wrapping up the week for us. If you want to hear more from Andrew Muller... You don't have that long to wait. He'll be wrapping up the week again uh, as he brings you Friday's Monocle Daily. Uh, that's coming up at 1800 London time, a little later today. Uh, that is all for this edition of The Briefing, which was produced by Carlotta Rabello, researched by Andre Nikolai Pamentuun, and our studio manager was Nora Hull. We'll be back at the same time on Monday. But from me, Tom Edwards, and all the Friday crew, that's your briefing. Thanks for listening.